0: Hello and welcome to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits.
1: Welcome to our debut episode. We are finally here. Yay! I'm like a kid in a candy shop this morning, nervous, excited, and maybe a little too much coffee it doesn't help that situation either.
0: <laughs> well, we're finally here and we are, we are ready to roll. So we thought for our debut episode, um, we'd start with a couple definitions
1: we wanted to define millennial and we wanted to define agriculture so millennial often gets misinterpreted as the the next generation but it's actually anybody in the er, born in the early 80s to the mid 90s so that's the people that are in production right now working on taking over the next generation and then agriculture is the science, art, or, or practice of cultivating soil, production crops, or livestock. So both very broad, but we at least wanted to bring those definitions to the forefront to introduce ourselves. Thanks for those definitions, Val. And um,
0: just a couple more notes before we before we truly dive into this episode. So, um, our topic today is agriculture, Civil War, and those immediately bring to mind a lot of very vivid, vivid images, and um, to be honest, those are hard things to think about, and truly, we considered um, not discussing something as tough like this, even straight out of the gate, but maybe at all, and, you know, Valene and I are, we're not confrontational people, we like to keep people happy, we really value our friendship. And we don't want, you know, a potentially um, tough topic to get in the way of that. But when we started this podcast, we made a very um, conscious decision that we have we have got to to face these sorts of topics and issues and challenges head on, because if we don't, it, it serves nobody Um you know, it doesn't make for a very interesting conversation. And we can't overcome the challenges that agriculture is facing if we don't talk about these things.
1: Yeah, I was, when I told my parents about this topic, I got crickets on the other line for a second and then asked that they kind of assist me in understanding the beef side of things a little bit more. And when they came back, I was like, we can't do this. Nope, nope, not going to happen. And It took a couple drives in the pickup, some coffee, some worship music even to go, hey, this is what our goal is. This is where we're going with it. And just rip the Band-Aid off. The hardest part is just getting started with those hard conversations. And we want to show that we can have these hard conversations, that these issues that have arose 20, 30 years ago that are still affecting our industry and nobody's wanting to talk about them. um, We are. Let's do it. <laughs> we are. We, we want to take the can't out of conversations
0: in agriculture, so we're ripping the Band-Aid off today. Um, in this first of a two-part series, we're going to be discussing the civil war that Balene and I specifically see in agriculture. First up today is the division among individual agricultural sectors. So, this is Catherine. Um, my background is in the dairy industry. Um, my folks started out uh, dairying on a very small scale in Connecticut way back in the very early 80s, and now we milk a large number of cows um, in the western desert of Utah. And, you know, watching what's going on in the markets today, um, you hear a lot of comparisons to what went on in the 80s. Uh, milk prices are low right now, there's a lot of volatility. And, um, you know, it seems like like dairymen are exiting the industry in in rapid numbers and and there's too much milk and not enough demand. And that's very similar to to what happened in the 1980s, Um, although I don't think that we're quite quite on the edge of that that crisis cliff as, as we were then. So I. I've been doing some research into the comparisons of of what's going on today versus what happened in the 80s, and obviously my parents experienced it, and even more so, my grandfather on my dad's side was a dairy extension agent um, in a very large dairy county in Connecticut, and uh, it was very near and dear to his heart and what he saw going on in the industry. You know, essentially, the collapse of it was very disturbing to him. And so, um, a few months ago, my dad shared a memo with me that was written by my grandpa and led to a lot of change in the dairy industry. So, um, I, you know, it it was it was really it was really an eye opening thing for me to
1: read. That's that's interesting. What what did that memo have in it, and how is there something maybe we could use today or? I wonder what what is that memo go ahead and read it
0: yeah I'll read it right now um, word for word so it's titled a proposal to reduce milk production and to reduce the cost of the government support program for dairy which you know reducing costs of government support always sounds like a good idea to us <laughs> very independent agricultural <laughs> producers so it says let's treat the cause instead of letting the dairy industry die a slow death under the probable farm bill provisions, dairy supports will be at least $12.80 per hundred weight minimum. Unless a CCC, Commodity Credit Corporation, purchase falls under $750 million, 70% parity will not be used. And parity is um, making prices what they were at the very beginning um, when the farm bill actually started back in the 30s or 40s, I believe. So milk prices, as of now, in October of 1981, um, are as high as they probably will be for at least the next two years. By June, milk prices will be a twenty-five per hundred weight lower. Costs are estimated to increase three to ten percent per year. The initial reaction of dairy farmers um, for the next six to eighteen months to reduce net income will be to produce more milk to stay alive. And then we will see sellouts, bankruptcies, and other drastic actions that probably will reduce production in two to five years. The result will be a financially weak dairy industry that may be unwilling or unable to moot production of milk for the coming years. The major problem? Too many cows. And a good guess here is 500,000 too many. Let's get rid of those extra cows now, and the situation of overproduction will be solved before the dairy industry goes down the drain. How? Make a payment of $500 per cold cow by the USDA for each cow a dairyman sells over 2% of his herd per month based on annual coal rate of 25%. The results will be an immediate reduction in milk supplies. The cost? $500 times 500,000 cows equals $250 million. As dairy supports are estimated to cost between $1 to $2 billion for the next year and probably as much into 1982 and 1983 if the cost of commodity credit purchases could be reduced to $750 million or less. The savings of government could be $1 to $2 and we would still have a healthy dairy industry. The the program could be administered by USDA with little additional administrative cost. The effect on the steer beef price has been estimated at negative two cents per pound. A precedent for such a program is the Soil Bank program. If we can't work to resolve the cause, too many dairy cows, we won't solve the problem.
1: So, how many... How much beef is going to end up in the market right away? How is that going to affect things? Well,
0: if this program went went on as as it said, it would have been half a million dairy cows into the into the beef supply chain.
1: And is that going to compete with my family <laughs> beef that we're producing?
0: I, you know, the honest answer here is yes, you're putting dairy beef into the traditional beef supply chain, a very large number of dairy cows.
1: Interesting. So following up on that letter and implications that have come and conversations, it ha- personally it had a negative impact on the beef industry. Well it saved you guys, it hurt my family in the whole process and and it's there's a lot of emotion still riding <laughs> from my family on those topics and the amount of, of ground beef, essentially, that entered the market almost overnight once it was implemented.
0: Yeah, and I know you had sent this memo to your dad, and he had some pretty strong words to say about this that honestly took me aback. Um, don't you tell us about some of the points that he made, and then I'll, I'll share what my initial reaction was.
1: Yeah, so it... And it was implemented, I believe, in 1986, and it ended up costing the federal government over a billion dollars to buy all those coal cows. And production um, in the beef market, you just flooded and liquidated all those cows, and it tanked the beef market overnight, essentially. And some of the beef producers went out of business because of it, and so that was, I guess those are his key key points in beef fell in the 19 in 1986 to an all-time low it's ever seen. So, from my
0: perspective, those are those are really hard things to hear because, you know, you just read the memo, I listen to my family history, and this was a way for for my industry to stay alive and honest obviously um, you know, it was written in 1981, it was implemented in 86. Um, a lot can change between then, especially if you get the government involved <laughs> and, and they change the program. And so, I mean, I would I would like to think, you know, my inner angels say that my grandpa had the absolute best of intentions, especially for his industry. But but as we all know, agriculture um, is it, it's subject to, you know, Newton's law of for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and this had a negative effect on the beef market. And you and I can go on all day <laughs> talking about this this particular issue. But what you know what what really grew out of this beyond beyond market degradation and um, you know bad feelings between our industries?
1: Well, it's been a like I've always known that the dairy and beef industries have clashed. Um, especially growing up in southern Idaho where um, from the about 2000s to now the influx of dairies has been exponential and with Joe Bonnie moving in and there's a lot of dairy cows and just there's some there's tension between the dairy and beef guys out there and and I always thought well they're just coming in you know new blood always always brings up some tensions but after bringing this topic up especially with the the older ranchers and the beef guys that have worked hard through all this, I think this is where it stems from, to be honest. <laughs> and how do we take, you know, and just starting this conversation and hitting it full on. And we, we weren't alive when this was happening, um, but we're still seeing implications of some of, not necessarily the market reactions or the government funding or any of that, Um, but the emotional ties are still there. And you start talking about the dairy buyout with, with anybody from our parents' generation on both sides and you strike a nerve of some kind. Yeah, absolutely
0: do. And I mean, because we know this issue so well and these are the backgrounds that we come from, this one is, you know, this is what we're most familiar with. But I think it's pretty easy to find this kind of conflict and tension all across agriculture in our different industry sectors. You've got beef versus dairy, you've got crop versus livestock, you've got, um, you know, you've got all of those tensions and the way we all do different things, we all need different things from the market. And, you know, the best example I think is when when feed markets are up, crop guys are happy because they're getting a higher price for what for what their raw product is and and livestock guys are all cranky and grumpy because we have to pay more for feed. And you know, it's not agriculture shouldn't be viewed as a zero sum game. Everybody, you know, there's there's realities in the market where we all need we all need different things from the market. There's going to be ups sometimes and downs for sometimes for everybody. Um, but I don't think that we can let that get in the way of, of um, pulling together as an industry, I think is the easiest way to put it. And we hear those words all the time, right? We need to pull together, we need to band together, we need to, we need to work together as an industry. And, you know, we've heard can't for a very long time. You know, um, it's never gonna happen. We've never been able to do it before and we just can't do that. And how, how do we overcome that, Val? What are where do we go from here?
1: I think finding the basic of where all this came from, or what animosity turns the beef and dairy industry against each other sometimes, or what makes the crop guys and the dairies or the crop guys in the feed yards a little bitter towards each other or the oil and gas and what what friction's there and where it stems from? We can We can solve the superficial. Let's hold hands and kumbaya. We're gonna fight the consumer sometimes, Um, but that's all superficial and that's fake. That's not there's not compassion towards each other or understanding. And it's I think we need to start finding these topics and finding the root of where some of this conflict and and so forth stems from.
0: I think you're absolutely right. You sent an article to me yesterday. Um we're always sending stuff <laughs> back and forth to each other. We're we're constant learners and love to see what each other is reading, but it was talking it was talking about conflict and you know how to how to really manage it because I mean conflict nobody nobody says that they like conflict, right? And there's some people like you and me who really <laughs> can't stand it. Um but the first thing in that article it said to embrace it. And that's a scary concept, but I think that that starts, that that is the beginning. We've got to embrace it. Here, you and I are starting a podcast. We're from two entirely separate sectors. Um, if we really wanted to, we could we could use the the ancestral you know um, uh, feud to to not be friends. Mm-hmm. But instead, you and I have really. Really tried to dig deeper and understand each other's industries. And when I've got a question about beef, I come to you. Um, you're my expert. So I think um, I think just exactly what you said. You know, digging into the root of the cause, or the the yeah the root of the cause, and and understanding where some of these bad feelings stem from is where I've got to start. And I mean, we can't say enough how hard this is. This is going to be a really really hard thing for agriculture, especially where <laughs> um, we've you know, we're we're used to these tensions. We've almost, you know, embraced those tensions and brought them in, in as friends and family to ourselves. But um I think, you know, William Faulkner, the author from way back when, said, Kill your darlings and he was he was referring to writing and when you think you've written something really good and you're really attached to it, um, you know, that's probably a sign that you should maybe let it go and you know, a really big part of growth is being able to let go of your, your most loved ideas. And I think in agriculture, um, the cant of, of getting along, of coalescing truly as an entire industry, um, has been a false narrative we've let ourselves believe for far too long.
1: Well, and I think human nature, too, is competition. Like, I want the beef industry to be better than the dairy industry, and we want to make more money, and we want to own more land. Um than the dairy guys and then when they come in and there's animosity but I think just taking a step back and putting our egos on the back burner and looking at the um, the better of the whole entire agriculture industry and setting goals for the agriculture industry as a whole I think will benefit us in the long run we might not see immediate improvement in our individual operations or in individual industries but I think for agriculture as a whole, and for us going forward, we've got to start doing that.
0: Absolutely. And you talked about the long run, and and how how embracing these conflicts and digging into them and and starting to try to solve them or heal them um, is necessary for our own for our own industry itself. But let's talk a second for about the external pressures that we face.
1: Yeah, we've got... I mean, you're, you're, we're competing for land, so you've com- you got the urban sprawl. We've also got pressure from different levels of consumers. Um, and then you've got the activists on the far-extreme side. And so we've got those external tensions that are knocking on our door. They're not... I might not see them today or tomorrow, in the work I'm doing, but I've seen them, and I know I will see them again. Absolutely.
0: I mean, with only 2% of us involved in production agriculture, um, that leaves 98% of the population to to focus their attentions on us. You know, um, we have more leisure time than we ever have before in history, in human history, and people need something to worry about, and unfortunately, Agriculture is coming into those crosshairs, and it's not to say that you know we can't we you know we can't revisit our production practices. And there's always something that we can do better. But um, you know there's severe pressure. There is severe pressure out there to um, to flatten agriculture and flatten you know food production as we know it. And um, those people are better funded, have more time than us. And, you know, have a true desire to see the wreckage of our industry. And so, um, I mean, I would tell you right now, the very cynical part of me says that agriculture is doing activist job for them by tearing ourselves apart from within. And I think that that makes this conversation all the more timely. What about you?
1: I totally agree. And I, I keep going back to why do people pick on ag and why do we pick on ourselves? And I think... To answer my own question, <laughs> um, food is emotional. You know, we eat in America three times a day or me five or six sometimes. <laughs> um, and it's something that's very emotional. We're working on a health journey or we're, we're bringing a family together or we're stress eating. But it's very emotional and we want to make sure that we're no- putting good quality products into our bodies and it's raised sustainably, and I'm—I want that, um, but consumers want that too. And I think we start those emotions start feeding from the inside out, and then the outside in. And there's a lot of conflict right now dealing around agriculture, on both the inside and from the outside, just because it's so emotional and we're so passionate about what we do and how we how we treat ourselves and our bodies and and taking care of the environment. What are
0: your thoughts on those? That's a really good point. And I think that the emotion plays into everything that we do, you know, despite that we might think that we're reasonable beings and that we're coming from a place of reason. Um, it's likely always traced back to emotion. And um, I think your points about food especially are very well taken. You think, you know, turning this back in, looking at ourselves as an industry and individual sectors within that industry, what we do is very emotional because our business is so tied to family and legacy and a way of life. And um, it can be really hard to separate those things. Um, I think especially in agriculture, and it's very personal what we do, you know, we all we all love, you know, love our cows, love our love our land, all of those sorts of things. And so you know when when someone from a different sector, you know, it seems like they're attacking you in your way of life, that's, that's personal. And it, you know, it, it's, it was really hard for me to hear the impact that, um, in action that I view as saving my industry had some seriously negative impacts on yours. And, you know, like we said at the beginning of the podcast,
1: it sort of made me want to shrink and run <laughs> away from even doing this. <laughs> well, and it's anytime you're questioned good or bad about, about things, I personally get defensive, you know, when you start questioning, well, how do you raise your beef? Well, what kind of food do you, and I, and most of the time, people are just curious. People just want to know, and I should value it as they're trusting me to tell them my perspective, but I sometimes put this wall up in front of me, and, and get defensive, and like, well, we do the best we can, and we, we work hard, and my family has done this, and we've done this, and but, how does that look for the consumer? and how does that look? Getting defensive even if I'm defensive about my own industry, what does that look like for the other industries within the sector of ag?
0: Yeah, and if we're getting defensive with each other, we don't have a hope to you know to help people outside of outside of our own little bubble understand what we do and how we do it and and how we try to take the very best care of them that we can. So, So here we are back at at the beginning. We've got tension, we've got emotion, we've got a lot of conflict within the individual sectors of agriculture. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that you and I, um, even though we we talk a lot and have a lot of ideas, we don't have the solution to this one besides that we have got to start the conversation and, um, you know, rip that band aid off. (laughs) Yeah, rip that band aid off. And I think. You know, not to pat ourselves too hard on the back here, but I think that um, we've been very fortunate and blessed to have become friends and be able be able to start this conversation, start with this very podcast, and going forward with Millennial AG, commit to the honesty to observe the world as it is and not as we wish it would be.
1: Absolutely, and I think as millennials, we can talk from experience. We value trust, relationships, and easy access to information. And I think building that trust as friends, as co-workers, we can, we can build that firm foundation of relationships so that we can start having these conversations and start moving forward and, and trusting each other not to judge and not to jump to conclusion before the conversations ended.
0: I think that's awesome. <laughs> And um, because we know that we don't have all of the answers, we invite you, dear listener, to get in touch with us. Um, If you've got topics or ideas that you want to see explored, please give us a shout.
1: Yeah, you can email us at at katherineatmillennialag.com. Also find us on social media. We have Instagram and Facebook.